to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everyone, this episode is coming out a little bit late. I ran out of time before heading to Uganda, which is where I am now and will be recording in the coming months. I saved the best for last to round out season two. Although, to be fair, all of my guests have been amazing. As you know, this podcast is about reconnecting with nature to live better lives. And as you've heard, that can mean a lot of different things, from seeing the similarities between ourselves and other animals, to recognizing how very dependent we are on nature. There's also interdependence that can fuel our connection. One animal that reveals just how closely our lives are intertwined with other species is salmon. Salmon are often called iconic, magical, but they're real fish, living real lives, and depending on us to take care of the water and resources they need to survive and thrive. We, in turn, have depended on them for thousands of years, and unlike us, they have not let us down. My guest this week is Ken Whelan, the research director for the Atlantic Salmon Trust. Not only is the work he and others are doing revealing just how special salmon are, but his love of fish and commitment to reconnecting communities with the nature all around them is work that we need more of. As you'll hear, we met at COP26 under a sea of salmon. You can find an image of that on the show notes or check us out on Twitter at WildConnectPod. Okay, let's get to the interview. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to welcome my guest this week, uh, Ken Whelan. He is the research director for the Atlantic Salmon Trust, and we met at COP26. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jennifer. So nice to speak to you again. It just seems like yesterday that we were chatting away in Glasgow. It is. And and we we met over lunch in the uh, underneath a beautiful installation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was an installation of over, over 300 glass salmon. And uh, what happened was a group of NGOs from across the Pacific and the Atlantic. We really wanted to try and draw attention to the uh, area of cold, clean water, something that I think joins us all across the planet. So uh, we had been offered a single glass salmon by Joseph Rosano, who's the fantastic artist that makes these glass salmon. And building on that, we thought, well, why not have a really wow of a display out of one of the ceilings at COP? So basically, we had to twist arms and bribe people and everything else. But we managed to get our way inside the COP building with this fantastic display. And it then happened that because of security concerns, it was very difficult to get people in unless they actually had a designation. 
And because of the fact that I'd worked as chairperson of the Biodiversity Forum here in Ireland, uh, my own parent department here in Ireland were kind enough to give me a designation. And that meant that I was upfront um, at all of the various events and meeting people and so on under the salmon as I met you. So it was great, really good. That's right. We met under the salmon. Um, and I'll make sure that uh, we post a photo of that installation so folks can see it. But you know, given, uh, so you're in Ireland. Are you there now, right now? I am. I am indeed. I'm just on the outskirts of Dublin on, on a beautiful July afternoon. So um, yeah, you've picked a very nice day to interview me. Wonderful. And, you know, before we kind of dive into a lot of your work and your research and the projects that you're doing, which I think are, are so important. And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the show, you know, I, I love to have listeners get a sense of, of who my guest is and how they came to do the kind of work that they're doing. And from what I could see, you've been pretty passionate about fish since you were little. Yeah, absolutely. So my dad, Lord Reston, my dad told me that I caught my first fish when I was four. And at about six years of age, we had killed some fish for the tea. He found me dissecting a fish on, on, on a great big slab of rock behind him. And he knew at that point that I was going to become a biologist. But uh, basically, I got involved here in the city, in Dublin City, with the local angling club. And in the 1960s, they were so progressive that during the wintertime, they used to run classes for the kids. And they used to teach us all about the biology of fish. They taught us about fly casting, how to tie flies. And most importantly, I got fascinated with the food that the fish eat. I got really interested in insects and in rivers. And that really was the start of this madness that has been my life ever since. But it's fantastic. Yeah, well, and it's such an incredible journey. And you've, but how did you come to really zero in on salmon? Has that been well, your, whole, your whole career? No, not at all. I actually started off as an entomologist. And oh. um, I started off because of my interest in insects and so on. I did my PhD on mayflies. And uh, because the mayfly I was interested in is the first cousin of the great big mayfly that you have in America, this uh, hexagenia species that at times swarms in massive numbers and it can block bridges and so on. Um, the mayfly that I was looking at is also a burrowing mayfly. And um, I had a lot of contact then with colleagues in Canada who were doing extensive research on hexagenia, got a chance to work in Winnipeg. So I was really destined, I thought, to work on invertebrates and to work on insects. And then um, I found then that there was an opportunity, a job opportunity, because obviously I had this passion for fish, given that I was an angler. Um, I was just about to go and do a PhD in British Columbia. And at 23 years of age, there was a couple of jobs came up and I said, I'm going to apply for these, one of these. And at least my face will be known when I come back from Canada. And I had a dreadful decision to make then because I was offered one of these jobs and I was allowed to continue uh, working on my PhD because they were particularly interested in mayflies as, a, as an indicator species of pollution. And we had a lot of pollution problems from farming in our big, rich midland lakes here in Ireland at the time. And that's really how I got kickstarted into the world of biology. And around 1982, when I'd worked on all sorts of different things, we were, our organization, uh, the actual format and the structure of the organization was changed. And we were given responsibility for, for salmon and for what we call sea trout, which are sea-run brown trout. And out of the blue, I got a phone call uh, working on a big river one afternoon uh, with Northern Pike. I got this phone call from my boss's boss 
And he said, Ken, would you like to work on salmon? And I sort of said, well, yeah, I'll give it a go. So I arrived up the next Monday to find out what all this was about. And he said to me, we are going to send you all around the world. We're very interested to find out how salmon is managed in other countries. So for the next two years, I was given a budget and my friend Kevin and myself with a second-hand camera and I think a third-hand sound unit, we went all over uh, the North Atlantic making a film about salmon management and ended up making two films. And that was how the whole salmon thing started, was really with uh, that magnificent introduction. What an adventure, too, to get to go around the world and understand the relationships uh, different countries have with salmon. It was, it was unique. It was really, it was a, I was very conscious of it even at the time. An amazing opportunity at one point in time to be able to compare and contrast. And people were just, they were just so generous to us. I think had we been a big film crew with lots of money and everything else, uh, I'm not sure we would have got on so well because we, we sort of arrived at people's doors penniless and sort of said, like, we're really interested in salmon. Can you tell us all about what you're doing? For example, one of the adventures we had in Iceland, I'll never forget it. It's very important. Now, I looked back at the film the other night just to remind myself about our visit to the glaciers in Iceland. And we we drove for maybe eight hours up to the base of one of the biggest glaciers in Iceland so that we could film the sort of um, uh, Ice Age type scenes for the film. And it was just such an experience, you know, midnight sun stuff, light the whole time. We could film 24 hours a day, a huge amount of basalt the water gushing through the basalt out into these little tiny primitive streams and the toe of this huge big glacier just behind us. It was awe-inspiring. It was fantastic stuff. And yes. to think now that a lot of that glacier is now gone, you know? Yeah. Are you talking about Vatna Yokos? Uh, yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I have, a, I have a love affair with Iceland. Um, been there a few times. And, um, and I know exactly, you know, the scene you're describing and and salmon are incredibly important for them as well. Maybe cod is probably top salmon in terms of its its importance. But so let's let's talk about salmon. Actually, you know what's special about salmon in terms of the way they live their lives and why um, and why it's so important. What what we need to do in terms of conservation? Like what's so what's so special about salmon? I think certainly in the context of climate change, a lot of that is in my mind now because of our preparations for COP and what has happened since COP, which has been a fantastic adventure in itself. Um, I think the one thing for me that salmon really clearly indicate uh, is the connection between all of our aquatic systems. So it makes this very strong connection between freshwater and saltwater. As humans, we have this silly idea that because there's a bit of salt dissolved in the water, to some extent, we need to manage these environments differently and look at them differently. They're all, one is all feeding into the other. And the salmon can seamlessly, uh, apparently, at about two years of age, move downstream and move directly from from freshwater into saltwater, make that amazing transition and that huge, huge challenge for its cells, where in freshwater, they have to avoid getting drowned because there's so much fresh water around the cells. When they go out into salt water, they have to avoid dehydration because the salt is sucking the water out of the cells. And they can do this. And then they go on these enormous travels across the ocean. And everywhere they go, they are picking up these vital, vital uh, clues as to how our environment is doing and what's wrong and what's right with our environment. 
I think they're, they're just amazing creatures because of the journeys, as I say, that they achieve and also because of the clues that they bring back with them right into your very hands right. because a salmon comes back into its home river. Yes. Well, and, and so this is a really interesting um, point because not all salmon are the same. I mean, uh, and, and you're the salmon person, <laughs> so I might be wrong, but some, like I know the Atlantic salmon, I believe, come, is it the Atlantic salmon that can actually re-enter freshwater and then still go back out to sea again? Or is yes, it- yes, yeah. ab- absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So the, 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 the Atlantic salmon was actually the original of the species. So the beautiful Pacific salmon that you have in North America, uh, they are actually branches of the original Atlantic salmon. And uh, you have different life strategies then adopted by the different uh, populations of fish. But generally in the Pacific side, the salmon die after they have laid their eggs. Whereas with Atlantic salmon, um, not a big percentage, maybe somewhere between three and five percent, can actually return to spawn for a second time. Uh, And that's really very, very interesting because even when they go back to sea, they make a decision. Are they going to stay out just for a single summer and then come back? Or are they going to stay for a whole year at sea and partially redo the journey they've done before? So these fish have this amazing ability to actually move through, as I say, these, uh, these environments really with great ease. Yeah, it's, they're incredible. And part of what you, you said you went around the world was to look at how other places were managing salmon populations. But I also imagine, you know, that you got exposed to how different communities and different places, um, what cultural importance the salmon holds for them. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and then also like back home in Ireland, what is the salmon sort of symbolize for folks? Well, I, I think we have a, in Ireland, we have a particular, uh, particularly strong attachment to salmon. Um, and lots of our myths and our legends are built around salmon. Uh, when we got religion, as they say, when St. Patrick brought in Christianity, as the monasteries were formed in Ireland, they were, far, they were generally formed on rivers where there were lots of salmon because they were, they were a great, of great importance. They were a source of wealth. They could be traded. They could be bartered. So you have this huge long history in Ireland in terms of the connection with salmon. And we share that with Scotland in particular, but that was just for Atlantic salmon. But then to go to North America and to meet uh, the First Nations in North America and to see so many similarities in terms of the way people regarded salmon and this uh, just this incredible um, affinity that they felt with these with these great wanderers. It was amazing how, again, it can join peoples and it can join communities. And when you, again, you look at the myths and the legends uh, that are all around the globe, whether it's in the Pacific, whether it's in the Atlantic, whether it's in Japan, whether it's in Korea, anywhere where these fish exist, we seem to have this common currency of myths and legends and this uh, ability to be awestruck by these creatures. It's true. And I think there, did you notice any um, particular differences in management style, if you will? I don't know if style is the right word, practices. Uh, between First Nations and more, um, you know, Western sort of North American approaches? Yeah, it was very interesting that you should ask that because, um, for for example, uh, here in Ireland, the very first law that was passed that we have on our statute books in terms of water pollution was actually passed in the year 1000 in relation to the River Liffey. 
to make sure that people weren't wa- washing flax and so on in the river and killing salmon. So that's, that was the sort of level of importance that people put on the salmon at that time. What was very noticeable was that in our old clan system, we used to be ruled by an ancient law system called the Brehan Laws. And in the Brehan Laws, all of the animals, whether it was the fish or whether it was the deer or whatever, they were, they were actually, uh, they, they were managed based on a coded system. So people realized you couldn't take too many and that if you took too many, you did away with the next generation. And this was inherent in the way they were managed. And as we moved on, and certainly as I journeyed around in the, in the, uh, in the 1980s, I could see a situation where all of that had been forgotten. So when we got as far as Greenland and when we got to the Faroes um, on that journey, we could see then where new fisheries had developed and all people were interested in was making a quick book. And uh, the fish were being hugely overexploited. They had no idea where they came from. They had no concern about where they were going back to. And the idea was international waters, let's kill as many as we can. And thankfully, manners was put, were put on that some years later through the uh, development of the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization and rules were put in place to try and stem that. But it was interesting to see the way man's greed had taken over in the more recent years. Whereas before this, what we had in common throughout the native peoples and throughout our own history was a situation where these were managed very carefully because they were seen as, 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 a, re, as a resource that could repopulate itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think industrialized, uh, commercialized fishing has really been detrimental to people's connection uh, to salmon and other uh, animals uh, and other fish. And I think that one of the great things that you're doing is reconnecting people to that. And, you know, so before I, I go into sort of climate change details and conservation and what needs to be done, I kind of want to shift a little bit to your community work, because one of the things that struck me in our conversation that made me want to keep talking to you was how you are, I think my interpretation was reigniting that connection between local communities and their rivers and their salmon. Can you talk a little bit about the community work you do and what motivated and inspired you to do that? Well, the community work, uh, it's, it started really in earnest probably about maybe 10 or 12 years ago now. So I had been working for some of the bigger state organizations and sensibly, of course, in the middle of a recession, I decided to actually start up my own business. And there was a good reason for that in that because the financial situation in Ireland here was so bad, there was a real opportunity to continue some of the work that was being done by state labs and so on. Um, in a private sector capacity, because the budgets were there to do the work, but they really couldn't afford to get involved with pensions or to get involved with uh, commitments in relation to employment and so on. So that gave that that gave me a great start. But when I was just beginning work, I was contacted by my university. I've always stayed very very close to the university in terms of uh, linkages and so on, and they offered me an adjunct appointment as a professor. And I went and they said to me, what we, what we have planned is a situation where we have these master's courses and we'd like you to do some teaching. I said, great, that's great. Then they came back to me and they said, well, we have no money now. We'd like you to do some teaching, but we'd like to pay you nothing. And I said, well, maybe in that case, I could maybe think about something a little different. And they said, what would you like to do? And I had been teaching people how to be angling guides. 
and I had got so much satisfaction out of uh, doing adult education. And I found such an interest in the biological side of what I was teaching. I suggested to them that I would run a course called the Freshwater Detective. And I ran it here in the city. And the idea was to bring people to some of the beautiful canals that we have here in Dublin, for example, and to open their eyes to the fact that what, what they thought were weedy little channels, strange looking things in the middle of the city, that these were bursting with life because the water comes from our midlands, which is very much rich limestone water, a huge variety of fish and insects in the middle of the city. And then I would bring them to the mountains and show them what was happening there. So this interest in sort of communicating with people, it grew and grew and grew. And more recently then, I got an opportunity to run a whole series of community initiatives where we're taking full communities now. We have Ireland divided into various counties. So on a county basis, we're running courses called Caring for Water. And we're teaching communities how to look after their own water resources, whether they have salmon present, whether they have brown trout present, whether they have northern pike, um, how to identify some of the insects, most importantly, some of the plants, what the benefits are to them in terms of battling for clean water with our local farmers and with their, with, with their local uh, public representatives. And it's really taken off. And particularly over COVID, COVID has given this an enormous boost where we had people with loads of time on their hands who weren't allowed really to drive anywhere, could walk their rivers and could start gathering this information. So it has really, as I say, it has really surprised me uh, the depth and the scale of the work that's ongoing at the moment, uh, stimulated, I hope, in part by our little courses, where people are now taking on projects and suggesting projects and looking for funding to push forward projects, but all from the bottom up. And I think that's the way it has to be. Well, and that's what's so, you know, beautiful when you think about the impact. So now you've, you know, you've offered these courses and citizens uh, uh, that live in these areas are invested in these waters and in these systems. How is that impacting the salmon? Well, I think in terms of, certainly in terms of uh, the system that we have here in Ireland is such that um, any really serious decisions that have to be made are made by what we call a citizen's assembly. So we have a statistical framework. Uh, um, and with that framework, we actually choose a random selection of 100 or more people from all sorts of different strata of society to come and discuss the really serious issues that are facing us. Uh, so that means that we have a direct input as communities. Um, into the actual policy decisions that are made. So there are several of these groups now ongoing at the moment that relate directly to the environment. So if you have people that are well educated in the needs, what exactly is required in order to turn around some of the issues that we do have in terms of fish passage? What are some of the issues that we have remaining in terms of water quality? And one that's a huge issue here in Ireland because the land is so rich, rich, We've had huge problems down the years from arterial drainage, and that's a big battle, trying to explain to people why it's worthwhile to actually start putting rivers back together. And we've started to do that, and we've had some really good success. And we have now got, not alone have we got the communities behind that idea, but also we've got some of the bigger state departments as well behind the idea that if they're really serious about protecting salmon, they have to put back in place the habitat that they have destroyed and to protect um, the habitat that remains. And I think that message is getting through. And that's really, I see, the role of the community. 
working through our various uh, our various uh, parties here uh, that make up the government, and also working directly with these citizen assemblies. Yeah, I, you know, I I think this is so important, no matter where we are. And I loved what you said about from the bottom up, sort of the grassroots, and not top down. Because if you if you don't if you don't have any sense of what's even in your backyard, you can't really connect to any of the policies or or you can't even know what needs to be done because you don't know what's happening. And so so this is really, I think, some of the most crucial work that you're doing. Not that the salmon aren't important, but it all goes back. It all leads, all roads, no, all rivers lead back to salmon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, a little silly pun there. Um, okay, so so going back to salmon, actually, what is happening right now with wild salmon and why should we be concerned? Well, let me just give the listeners just, just two numbers that they can think about. 30 and 5. So about 30 years ago, uh, maybe a little more, when our young salmon went to sea here in Ireland, um, after one year at sea, uh, they come back at what we we, we call the small salmon grills. That's the term we use for them. But um, the grills used to come back at the rate of about 30 out of every 100. At the moment, we're very, very lucky if we see five out of 100 coming back. And at times we're seeing two and a half or three on average come back out of every 100 smokes. So that's the big mystery at the moment. Why are these fish disappearing and why have they disappeared so fast? And most importantly, what could we do to try and address that? So that's the big push at the moment. And as it stands in terms of the research that we're doing, it would seem that um, Obviously, everything that we do in freshwater, what I mentioned earlier in terms of the agricultural problems, the problems in terms of barriers and so on, everything that I've mentioned so far, they're additive and they are putting extra pressure on the fish. But over and above that, we have a real serious problem at sea. And again, these fish are proving to be invaluable indicators of what's happening in terms of the surface layers of the ocean. And they are finding these surface layers of the ocean that at times they're very inhospitable and they're not offering them the chances that they did 20 or 30 years ago. And that's really what we're tackling at the moment, trying to understand what actually uh, is causing the fish to die. Well, and when you say surface layer, just so because people may not have a sense of how deep salmon really swim and where they hang out when they're out at sea, what layer do they hang out typically in the ocean? Well, this is really going to knock people off their seats because um, as young fish, they are, I mean, seriously in the surface in that there may be uh, in centimetres, maybe 50 centimetres, maybe, you know, uh, what would that be? A couple of feet um, under the surface of the ocean when they're travelling north to their first feeding grounds. When they get bigger, they can certainly dive and dive very deep. But when they're young fish, um, they travel very much in the surface. They travel very far and they travel very fast. And think about this in terms of what we would call in scientific terms, energetics. Think about a little fish that's going out at about maybe four or five inches. That fish is going to come back at maybe 26, 27 inches a year later. If it's going to grow at that rate, it really has to keep putting on the weight. It can't waste too much of its energy. So the whole cycle of the salmon is designed by nature so that when they get to the sea, 
that they use the currents, they hitch, hitch a ride on the currents. The food is generally synchronously available at the time when they need it. They can munch away within these currents. They can move laterally within the currents, but the currents are bringing them to where they need to go to. So if this changes, if the actual surface currents, as is happening, if the surface currents change, and most importantly, if the, if the fauna, if the actual food uh, items within those surface layers, if they change due to climate change, then you get this incredible mismatch between what the fish are expecting and what they actually find. And that would appear to be, uh, that would appear to be the case. Okay. And we have some amazing evidence here in Ireland as to how these change, how these seas are changing. Ireland is actually in a very, very good position to look at marine climate change because we're on the outer edge of Europe. And you have the Celtic Sea, which is the big sea off the south coast of Ireland. Um, that's actually the sea that shares the Mediterranean, the uh, Bay of Biscay and so on. So warm water. And then as you come up along the West Coast, you start to move into very, very cold Arctic type water. So we're on the interface between the cold and the hot water. And what we're seeing at the moment off our South Coast is extraordinary. We're seeing a situation now where you can catch triggerfish, which normally you would catch in the Mediterranean, where you can catch big numbers of Mediterranean sea bream, where you can catch all sorts of different warm water tuna. So you don't have to be a PhD in uh, marine science to see with your very eyes how the seas are changing off the south coast of Ireland. So that's the sort of arena into which these baby salmon then suddenly launch themselves. And they say, hey-ho, this isn't what I was programmed to put up with. So in some years, they actually survive quite well. Other years, it's a total disaster. And it's very spiky. It's up and down all the time. And very, very difficult from a scientific point of view to pin it down and to see exactly what's happening, and most importantly, to try and predict uh, what's going to happen in future years. So just so the listeners know, you know, and I love the imagery of thinking about one, thinking about these baby salmon launching off on this adventure, and then that's followed immediately by feeling really disheartened that so many of them are not surviving. What are the things that they eat? What is the food that they depend on? So the, the important thing to remember is people tend to put, uh, um, and I understand this, they tend to put salmon on a pedestal. They, they, people use words like you know, iconic, symbolic, and so on. At the end of the day, when they're at sea, they're actually a big silver northern pike. So their favorite food is fish. And they try and get to eating fish larvae as quick as they possibly can. And after the fish larvae, then they start feeding on squid and other small fish and so on. They're quite Catholic in their tastes once they get bigger. They just need to put food in their tummies. But initially, they are totally dependent on all sorts of little crustacea. And it's the plankton, it's the crustacea in the plankton that they start feeding on. So these, the, these blooms are this abundance of plankton, this synchrony between the particular type of plankton, the size of plankton, the time of the year, and the exodus of the little smolten may, they all have to be in line for the fish to do very well. And you take any one of those little pieces of the jigsaw out of that, and suddenly you find that these fish are stressed and these fish are very, like, uh, very likely to be uh, preyed upon by other fish because they're losing condition and not as powerful as they should be. And now is this part of one of the projects you have the the Moray Firth tracking project where you're actually trying to pinpoint 
what's happening with these fish or is that a different project? No, they're all, they're all linked. So we have at the moment, uh, I should just mention that the Atlantic Salmon Trust, even though it's based in Perth in Scotland, it, it basically ranges far and wide. It's, it's, it's a charity based on, on research. So our sole purpose uh, for being is to carry out research on wild Atlantic salmon and these sea trout that we have as well. So um, we have two big projects running, two field projects. We have one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast to Scotland. And we've joined with partners here in Ireland as well, so that we have a very extensive program looking at these trackways, how the fish actually get to what we now know to be a giant motorway or highway that actually brings the smolts along the west coast of Ireland, the west coast of Scotland, and up to the west coast of Norway. And we have identified the area where the salmon feed in their first summer. So all the fish are trying to get onto this highway. And what are the routes that they take to get out into that highway? And most importantly then, what are they feeding on on the way out to the highway? And how has the highway changed in terms of food resources since the 1960s? And there's a couple of uh, very brilliant oceanographers working with us at the moment. And some of the results, I think, that they're going to present in the autumn at a big conference in Vancouver, I think they'll be quite, they'll be quite mind-blowing because they've, they've turned up some really good uh, analyses now actually showing us how these plankton are changing why these plankton are changing. And I think based on that, I think we can start to understand why we're getting some years when we get fairly decent returns of fish, why we're finding in other years that we're finding really very poor and worryingly low numbers of fish coming back. Okay. Well, hopefully uh, we can can follow up on what those results are when they come out. One of the things that struck me about that tracking project, though, was that it uses acoustic telemetry. And yes. this, of course, my ears perked up um, because I didn't know salmon, young salmon make noises. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, it's not so much that the, the salmon make noise. What we do is we insert into the salmon a tiny little, uh, a tiny little transmitter tag. And uh, the little transmitter tag then transmits uh, the location of the fish. And then we have these receivers on the ocean bed and you can do it in fresh water. We do it right down through the river systems, through the lock systems in Scotland, out into the estuaries and out into the ocean. So we can map the actual pathways of these fish. At the moment, these little tags, the battery life is quite short. So really you're looking at maybe two or three months in terms of the battery life, but it's only the initial stages. And certainly for the larger salmon then, they are attaching some of the pop-up tags that they use for seals and for uh, whales and so on. They're using pop-up tags on some of the bigger salmon uh, where they capture them in the ocean and look at what's happening in the ocean as well. But our research at the moment is concentrated on the smaller fish with these little transmitter tags and uh, just trying to define very clearly the pathways out to this big highway, as I say, that's heavy, heading north. Okay. Well, that makes a lot more sense, but some fish do sing. So I just imagined all of these young salmon chattering together, like, let's go this way, <laughs> no that way. And you were somehow listening to that. <laughs> so Well, maybe, maybe they do. That's a lovely idea. We, we should put down hydrophones and see if that's actually the case. But as far as we know at the moment, they, they don't, but they do seem to be uh, really very sensitive to the presence of others. Um, uh, many, many years ago, when we had far less sophisticated technology, 
we used to put tiny, tiny little magnetic tags, put the fish asleep and put a tiny little magnetic tag into their nose. And what we did find out from that work was that very often uh, batches of fish actually stayed together um, right up to a situation where they were nearly adults. Uh, it may have been because that they went out together, but it might also be that uh, they have this kind of shoaling instinct as well, even though they're seen as really kind of individual fish. They do tend to feed in big groups, mainly because the food is concentrated, we think, in particular areas. Well, you never know. Maybe each salmon has a salmon friend. Um, Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> um, it's a nice thought. And, you know, but there's, you know, so we've talked about the challenges uh, with changes that are happening in the ocean and in the ocean currents and the food source and these um, really an inhospitable was the word you used conditions at the surface, which is where these uh, young salmon are spending their time. But there's another problem that you recently uh, discovered, which was there's a, uh, there's a pink salmon that is invading these waters and what's going on there in terms of what problem is, is that causing for Atlantic salmon? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because we ran two workshops last week in Edinburgh and one of the workshops, we have some fantastic presentations on this, on this whole area. And what I'll do is in about four weeks time, I'll send you the link uh, for the AST YouTube channel. And folks can actually look at the presentations for themselves. Um, but what has happened is that since the 1950s in Russia, there, was, there has been an attempt made to transplant pink salmon, which are Pacific species, transplant them into some of the Atlantic rivers in part of Russia that's called the Kola Peninsula. So they started in the 1950s. They retried in the 1960s. They tried again then in the 1970s, 1980s. But as far as they were concerned, the fish never really took hold. Now, they continued to get small numbers of fish back, but it didn't support a food fishery, which was their, which was their expectation. But nobody told the fish that they weren't supposed to explode in terms of the numbers. And in 2017, in Europe, we did not know really what hit us. Um, I was sitting at my desk one afternoon, and this picture came up on the screen with a little message from Inland Fisheries Ireland saying, that a sockeye salmon had been caught in the Galway fishery. So I rang my, Ke my friend Kevin and I said, Kevin, that, that's not a sockeye. Oh, he said, we have an expert here from North America. He said, it's definitely a sockeye salmon. And I said, well, Kevin, I'm afraid you have an expert here from Ireland as well. And I said, I have to tell you that that's a pink salmon. So I contacted my pal then, Tom Quinn, who is an expert on, on pink salmon in Washington in Seattle. And um, I said, Tom, isn't this a pink? We didn't realize what was going to happen after that. So rivers in Ireland, rivers in France, rivers in Scotland, rivers in Germany, but particularly rivers in Norway, Finland, and in uh, Russia, the huge numbers of these pink salmon started to appear back, particularly in the Northern rivers. We'd very modest numbers, but plenty enough to cause quite a stir. And we, we don't really understand why they suddenly came back in such enormous numbers. But the, to, to think that they were as far south as the French coast is quite extraordinary. And since then, the, the cycle of the pink salmon as such, they arrive every two years. So 2019, we had good numbers of fish back, nothing spectacular, but good numbers came back. Very big numbers, increasing numbers in northern Norway. And then this past year, 2021, northern Norway and Finland had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these pink salmon coming back. And um, we are very concerned 
that uh, they may very well start to then take hold and to move further and further south. So it's quite a big concern now in terms of this species because they're not in their natural habitat. We have no idea really about their biology at sea. We just know that generally when they're in their native range, they're very much um, offshore species, but they may very well be competing with Atlantic salmon for food at sea. Um, They certainly uh, will cause all sorts of disruption when they come into freshwater. And uh, the cycle is such that uh, in July time, these fish start to spawn. They spawn until August. Um, The bodies then, the fish die off after their spawning, as I mentioned earlier. The bodies are there in very warm water causing all sorts of dreadful smells and disruption to the ecology and biology of the rivers. So at this stage, we're not sure what we're dealing with, but we just know that we need to try and do something about it. Well, so, okay. So there's a lot of things that I, to unpack there, you know, my question is, well, first I just want to sort of let listeners know we can have non-native species that aren't invasive, and then we can have non-native species that are invasive where yeah. the difference being invasive is really going to be causing collateral damage either for humans or other species that are are native species to an area. So at present do we do we have yet a sense of whether or not the pink salmon would fall under the invasive category or are they simply just in ranges that are not native to them at this point? Well, we do know that, and that's a really, really well put and and important question. We do know, for example, outside of our biological world, but in the sort of sociological world, um, some of these big rivers in Norway, people pay an enormous amount of money to go and fish for Atlantic salmon. And I've had personal experience in Russia, working in Russia, of what happens when these fish start to die. Um, The river is just so offensive in terms of the smell and the numbers of fish dying in the middle of summer that really it's very difficult even to think about going near the riverbanks. So there's a very much a a socioeconomic impact, a direct socioeconomic impact. Um, We do know now that they probably are causing quite major displacement. So even though they may not be killing anything, the appearance of these fish, which are kind of two to four pound in weight in hundreds of thousands, they're going to displace the juvenile salmon are going to displace other species. Um, the consequences of that, we have no idea. Um, we're very concerned about maybe diseases that they might bring in that could be fairly benign within a population of pinks, but they could maybe affect the, uh, um, the Atlantic salmon. But this is all so new. To be honest, we don't actually know, but certainly through our risk assessment process here in um, Europe, they have definitely been designated as, as uh, invasive species. Yeah. Well, and then, so that leads me to another question, you know, because again, I don't know the, the intimate details of Atlantic salmon spawning and timing, but I do know, I think, well, I, I shouldn't say that so confidently. Am I correct that Arctic char is a hybrid between like, so Arctic char and trout are salmonoids, right? So trout, Arctic char and Atlantic salmon, they all are salmonoids. Is the Arctic char a hybrid between trout and salmon? No, they're all cousins. That's the best way to describe it. So if the listeners can imagine uh, just a vertical line and then branches coming off that vertical line. So um, the Arctic char were were one of the earliest invaders after the ice uh, started to melt after the last ice age. So the Arctic char generally are the fish that come in first. 
And then after the Arctic char, you will have the trout, the migratory trout. And then after that, you will have the salmon. So interestingly, a big debate amongst biologists about whether salmon were originally fresh or saltwater fish. I certainly just come down on one side. I'm absolutely convinced that originally they, they, they were as a saltwater fish, but probably in seas that were enormously dilute and uh, may only have started to appear then in freshwater after the ice uh, started to retreat. But um, again, a couple of dates maybe and a couple of numbers for people to remember. So if you remember my birthday and Christmas Day, that gives you a very good idea of where you're going in terms of the life cycle of Atlantic salmon. So certainly here in Europe, Christmas Day is the peak of when the eggs are laid. So we, we, we assume that that is the peak spawning time here in Ireland and Britain. Um, and then the little eggs lay, uh, lie in the gravel, I should say, and start to come out of the gravel then on the 1st of April. And that happens to be my birthday as well. So the 1st of April is when the little baby salmon come out from the gravel. They have a little tiny, beautiful little orange yolk sac that feeds them during the time when they're actually in the gravel. Then they pop out onto the top of the gravel around the 1st of April and start feeding on these tiny little microscopic organisms that are in the water. And then they become little baby salmon. So um, the timing of the spawning is much, much later than the pinks. And it's usually governed by very cold water. So climate change has a problem for us in that sometimes the winter temperatures now are causing salmon not to mature properly, but they really need a cold snap in December to be really successful. Whereas the pinks are the exact opposite. Uh, in our climate in particular, they're, they're, they're spawning midsummer. So it's unlikely that they're going to actually interfere in any way with the salmon spawning. And also there is some evidence that uh, they're not as far reaching as the Atlantics in terms of their migration pattern. They may just occupy the lower ends of the rivers where generally the Atlantic salmon don't spawn. They tend to climb mountains. They tend to look for cold, clean water. They tend to go up looking for gravel at, in the highlands, for example, at the very tops of these beautiful big salmon rivers in Scotland. Okay. Well, so before I say anything else, I have to say how marvelous is it that you are the research director at the Atlantic Salmon Trust. You've spent many, many years of your life studying salmon and protecting salmon, and they come out on your birthday? It's great, isn't it? <laughs> Marvelous. Um, it's just, I don't know even what to call that. Um, kismet, something. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, but, but where I was going with that question was trying to get a sense of whether or not there's potential for hybridization, but it looks like not just in timing, but even in location that they're, they're at least what we would call reproductively isolated from being able to do that. Yeah, I think so. I think that, I think that is true. And we should also maybe, I think we have to be balanced here as well. Look at maybe the positive, positive aspects as well. Um, if you have huge numbers of these little baby pink salmon and the, the cycle is such that they lay their eggs, as I say, maybe August, September time, July to September. Um, and then it's the next May, April, May, when the little baby salmon then go back to sea in the case of the, uh, the pinks. But they're tiny little silver things. They're only um, an inch or an inch and a half long when they're going back to sea. And as far as we know, they don't feed. But imagine the food resource that's there for the, for the trout and for the other freshwater species. Imagine the food resource that's there for predatory birds at the very time when the Atlantic salmon smolts are actually going to sea. So there may be hidden advantages as well as the obvious disadvantages. 
And I think as scientists and researchers, we have to be very objective in terms of looking at this and seeing, you know, what the consequences are. Because if we're invaded by so many fish that we can't actually deal with them, we may have to consider commercial fisheries. We may have to consider a situation where we have sport fisheries or a situation where we look at the benefits they might bring in terms of the lower reaches of the rivers. So at the moment, it's a complete unknown. Um, The advice we're getting is take these things out. But if we can't, well, then we might have to look at some of the positives and see how we manage those. Right. And maybe pink salmon are tasty. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know they, cert- they certainly are tasty. I mean, they're, they're canned extensively. And certainly in Europe, we have lots and lots of North American pink salmon in our supermarkets. So they are very tasty. There you go. Um, and so one last thing is kind of along these lines, you know, when you, you just brought up commercial fisheries and you know, when I was in Iceland and I was driving along um, the southern the southern part of the country, just offshore, I saw you know um, pens, uh, large large pens, and and so I kind of you know would love to get your take on salmon farming and how it is impacting wild salmon, maybe on the positive and the not so positive sides, if there are any positives. Um, do you, do you, do you have any position on that? Well, <laughs> I'm smiling here to myself because, uh, I think we'd, we'd have to take up another program to try and describe to you the adventures that we've had with, uh, with aquaculture, with salmon aquaculture. So we've had really, really serious problems, uh, in Scotland and in Norway in particular, we've had a fair amount of problems here in Ireland as well. From a scientific perspective, in terms of the fish I mentioned a couple of times earlier, these sea-run brown trout, which tend to live and stay very close to the coast, um, aquaculture has actually at times wiped out populations of sea trout. Um, It produces massive numbers of sea lice if the the cages aren't properly cared for. And there's very, very major issues uh, with escaped salmon crossbreeding wild Atlantic salmon. So in situations where the farms aren't properly managed, they pose a very serious threat to both the salmon and to the sea trout. Um, Hopefully in recent years, people have begun to learn lessons, but the size of this industry now in Europe is just so enormous that it's going to be very difficult to try and manage it. But there's a lot of research ongoing at the moment to try and find a mechanism whereby it can be properly managed. And that's actually one of the main reasons why we're doing this big tracking program off the West Coast of Scotland. Scottish government are our partners in the program. They've provided a lot of the resources that we're using, and they're very keen to make sure that salmon farms are sited um, in locations where these sea lice are not going to impact on migrating salmon or sea trout. And of course, that should have been done 20 or 30 years ago when the farms were put in place. But at least now there's a brand new policy in Scotland, a very proactive policy. There's a new management regime coming in and hopefully our research will feed into that so that in the future we can find a mechanism whereby people can benefit from the economic benefits of salmon farming, but reduce the overall environmental impacts. I I think that's beautifully said. And, you know, and I think now that you know that there are these highways um, keeping things away from those highways is a really good uh, approach. And I think that I recently just saw a story that they that scientists have identified a shark superhighway and that they're working with you know commercial boats to keep them off of that highway. Well, certainly the um, the ocean tracking network 
that has a direct connection with salmon because Fred Worski, who was the brainchild behind the ocean tracking uh, network, Fred and I worked together for many years. He's a salmon biologist. And uh, Fred is now based in Dalhousie University and the ocean tracking network has done extraordinary stuff around uh, the world, particularly around Australia, um, looking at sharks and looking at shark movements. I'm not sure if the highway is directly connected with the ocean tracking network, network but I'd be surprised if it isn't. It so what we I think it is. And what we have found with this uh, interface that we've developed now between the north of the island of Ireland and uh, the islands in Scotland and the mainland in Scotland, by basically cutting off that highway uh, with our receivers, we weren't just looking at salmon in our programs. Our, our colleagues then were looking at skate. They were looking at sharks. Uh, they, were, they, they were also looking at whales and dolphins. So what we've learned is not to be looking, not to be just preoccupied with a single species. Here's me saying this, and I spent my life looking at salmon, but we need to understand the ecology. We need to understand what's happening with the sister species as well. And that's what's really exciting with this new te- these new technologies. For example, just very recently, we have suddenly realized that people uh, around the coasts of Wales and Ireland that have had all these receivers out uh, picking up uh, acoustic tracks from whales and dolphins have also been picking up our salmon and sea trout. So we've asked them for our data back. And this is great stuff because they have suddenly realized that we can also provide them with data. And when we're going looking for very scarce funding, particularly as NGOs, I mean, really, it doesn't make any sense to be going and looking for funding for just one species. If you're going to put in this fantastic array of receivers that can tell people all about the narrows in the ocean. And what's actually happening within those very specific areas of the sea. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know you're a very busy man. It took us a, a long time to coordinate our schedules. And so just kind of, you know, what's next for the Atlantic Salmon Trust and, and for you? Well, I think the Atlantic Salmon Trust, which is more or less the same as myself, I suppose, in terms of, of, of where we're heading, um, we have developed what we call the Lightly Suspects Framework. So what we have decided and we decided some years ago was that really uh, there was no point in, again, doing this in isolation. And we needed a mechanism, uh, a data mechanism, so that we could draw together all of the information that was required to answer the very complex questions that we're tackling. So Graham Dyack, who's this very brilliant uh, data guy that we have in AST and his colleague Colin Bull, they've actually put together now the Lightly Suspects Framework It's now available. It's freely open to people to input data. And we've had an invitation from ICES, the International Council for the the Exploration of the Seas. And they said, if you guys can identify the data sets that you're interested in, all this stuff about the surface layers, the ocean and the temperatures, the currents and the plankton, we have all these data in ICES. We'll freely give this to you to log into your new big uh, likely suspects framework. Will you come along to ICES and tell us exactly what you require? So we're just in the throes of doing that at the moment. And I I think twinning that with the tracking work that we're doing, I think we're very close to understanding exactly what's happening and hopefully to be able to advise people in terms of how we can optimize the number of baby salmon going to see really healthy salmon that can at least in part counter what's happening uh, in the ocean due to climate change. Wonderful. Well, now I'm going to put you on the spot because you and I crisscrossed again in Scotland, although this time we didn't, we didn't, our our paths crossed. I was in Inverness, you were in Inverness. And so I'm going to, I'm going to put out the request to you that, that 
someday I get to go on the field with you to do some some salmon work in whether it's in Ireland or in Scotland doesn't matter well what I'm going to bring you is to I've just fallen in love um I've spent for the first time uh, this spring I spent quite a long time on the western isles as it's called the the, the Hebrides mm-hmm. uh, the first set of islands off the west coast of Scotland you just have to come and see the Hebrides I mean some of the some of the scenery uh, certainly some of the wildlife. It's just so special. It's a fantastic location. And you now have a formal invitation to join me on the Hebrides. Yes. All right. Score. Um, thank you so much, Ken, for being on the show. And I'm going to make sure in the show notes, we have uh, ways for people to uh, keep up with you, to keep up with the Atlantic Salmon Trust and um, some of these other projects that we mentioned uh, so that they can can follow your adventures, which are continuing. And maybe one of these days, we'll find out if all those salmon are talking on their way on the highway. <laughs> okay, Jennifer, listen, it was a great pleasure. And uh, I'm looking forward now to reciprocating uh, in that I will send you an invite to come and talk to us about uh, prairie dogs on the little wildlife show that I'm involved with here in Ireland. I'm sure people would be equally delighted to hear about prairie dogs. Oh, and I love talking about them and I've just uncovered some really new stuff. And so I'll be so excited to share. So thank you. There was so much to contemplate and consider in my interview with Ken, not the least of which is the future of salmon. Certain salmon species are under threat, while others may be presenting a threat, especially to the Atlantic salmon. But we can't blame the pink salmon. We have to think about the amount of pressure that any species can handle before they disappear. And this is where diamonds come in. I don't usually talk about jewelry, and I'm not talking about jewelry. I'm talking about pressure and how diamonds are created. There are two types of diamonds. There's the kind that we normally wear as jewelry, and then there's the lonsdalite diamond, which is formed when meteors hit the earth. Now, artificial diamonds have been made in the lab for a very long time. Uh, They use high temperatures and high pressure, something that the earth is experiencing right now. High temperatures and a lot of pressure. But what we're going to get out of it is not diamonds. What's going to happen is that there's going to be too much pressure for many species to be able to cope and adjust, and they're simply going to disappear. Recently, scientists were able to artificially create lonsdalite diamonds simply by applying a tremendous amount of pressure. Described as 640 elephants standing on top of the tip of a ballet shoe. That is a direct quote. The carbon experiences something called shear, or a twisting, sliding force. And this moves things around and forms the diamond. Shear can be thought of basically as breaking off or um, collapsing, really, due to structural strain. And that's what's happening to many of the pieces that salmon need to complete their entire life cycle, which is complicated and delicate and yet they have persevered and survived 
using this very complicated, delicate lifestyle for the past 15 to 20 million years ago. Salmon ancestors, or the ancestors of salmonoids, all of the salmonoid species that we have today, were around 50 to 95 million years ago. This is not a group of species that doesn't know how to survive. And yet, in just the last 100 years, we've managed to threaten their existence. All right, that's the end of season two. Thank you for staying with us. And, and I look forward to bringing you some wonderful and insightful guests here in Uganda. Don't forget, if you like the show, please, please subscribe, share it so other people can find it. And you can check out the show notes at my website, jenniferverdalen.com or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Wild Connect Pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen or on Instagram at Real Dr. Jen and keep up with what's happening here in Uganda and the work that I'm doing. Thanks for listening. Bye.